Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 250, Tuggy vs. Brown Debate, Audience Q&A. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is the remainder of the audio from my debate with Dr. Michael Brown, held on January 11th, 2019. To my delight, a number of biblical Unitarians from different places showed up, and I was really grateful for their prayers and support. As he said, Dr. Brown didn't do much to publicize the debate, so not as many people came as I would have expected from that church or other Trinitarians from the Charlotte area. But the biblical Unitarians who showed up and others had a lot of good questions to ask, and you might even recognize a few voices in here. Really, this Q&A time substantially added to the value of the debate, and Dr. Brown and I agreed to go longer than the 30 minutes we had initially agreed to, so there are some additional questions and answers here. The format was that if a question was asked to you, then you got two minutes to answer, there was a timer at the back of the room, and then the other person would get to add one minute of response as well. Over then to the questioning audience. Hi, my question is for Dr. Brown. You said that the Son is not the same as Jesus, but if Jesus... No, I, I didn't say that. The Son I, is not the same as Jesus because he's both 100% God and 100% man. I think you, you said that. Oh, okay, the Son is... Incarnate is Jesus. Okay. okay. But from the incarnation, Jesus is part of the tri- triune Godhead. Yes. Doesn't that mean that a man is now part of the Godhead, which would be blasphemous because a human man is now part of the Godhead? And also when you talk about the complex unity of God, are you also accepting that if it's complex, it, it could be more than three? It's just that till now God has revealed in three, but it could be four or five, you know, multiple right, so Holy two, Spirits. Yeah, two questions. No, the Bible's explicit, Father, Son, and Spirit, so it's not more than three. But I prefer to speak of God being complex in his unity because the Bible doesn't give us simple formulas. The Godhead remains the Godhead. Uh, there are different conflicts over the centuries about issues and, you know, that you're joining the humanity to the Godhead and there are accusations of that. But God remains eternal God. He clothed himself in human flesh for a time. He did it, for example, in Genesis 18 when he did it. When Yahweh appears to Abraham, God remained eternal God, just clothed in human flesh. So there's no problem with that. It's it's not joining anything extra to God. God is the only one that we worship as God. End of subject. He he can clothe himself in human flesh for a second or for 30 years or forever. That's that's up to him. But it doesn't make a man into God or join humanity to deity. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about traditional two natures speculations, and they're super problematic. Some interpret the natures as beings, and they say that human nature died on the cross. Some interpret the natures as properties. So divine nature is just whatever properties are necessary and sufficient for making something God. Human nature is whatever properties you have to have to be human. I didn't get into that whole thing because Dr. Brown shies away from this traditional language. He just wants to say, and what he thinks is scriptural language, that the Son is God. And he seems to think he's the same self as God. He doesn't particularly get into this business of natures. If you want to know what I think about two natures theories, look at my presentation called Clarifying Catholic Christologies online. We have a question for Dr. Tuggy. In uh, Genesis 1, 26, and also several other places in the Old Testament, this language is used. It says, then God said, let us make man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So I'm wondering how you would explain that us. Yes, thank you. That's a great question. So I agree with interpreters like the evangelical Trinitarian Dr. Michael Heiser that in the context of that time, God is referring to basically his heavenly court that attend him. Notice that he says, uh, let us make man in our image and likeness, and then he proceeds to do it all by himself. And that might seem a little strange. Some call this the plural of deliberation, or it could be a plural of announcement. I mean, here's an analogy. You're hanging out at Thanksgiving, and my mom says, I know what we should do. Let's make a pie. And then my mom just makes a pie. 
And there's nothing particularly problematic about that. And later on, you know, he has become like one of us, understanding good and evil. The us, presumably, there is what theologians call, textual scholars call the divine council, what we usually call angels. So I think that's the best reading. I don't think it's like one person of the Trinity talking to another. Because again, whenever creation is clearly talked about in the New Testament, it's the Father who they're talking about. There are, of course, a small handful of contentious passages, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 8, John 1, where people think, ah, oh, this has got to be two creators, one of which who creates through another one. I think those are mistaken interpretations. They just derive from those Logos theory traditions. It's really the Logos theory traditions that are the origin of this saying that the seen God, the seen Lord in the Old Testament has got to be Jesus because it's absolutely impossible to see the Father. You see that in Justin Martyr toward the end of his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, for instance. And it's motivated by what I said, his platonic views about God, that God can't interact directly with creation, so he's got to do it indirectly. Some of what, what Dr. Tuggy said is, is possible, and of course there's great scholarly debate about that, but what's interesting in Hebrew, it's not just let us make, but in our image, in our likeness. So are human beings made in the image of angels, in the image of God? So although the language doesn't prove Trinity, it's in harmony with Trinity. As for the text, texts that are allegedly contentious, they're only contentious because the Son is rejected as the Creator. There's nothing contentious about John 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 8, or Hebrews 1. Nothing contentious whatsoever. But another verse that could have been used to support your point, and one I've emphasized, Genesis 48, 15, and 16, the God in whose ways my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd from my birth to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, singular verb, bless the lads. So there we have quite explicitly God and the redeeming angel joined together as one and addressed in a singular verb, very clearly Trinitarian in understanding there. It doesn't work in another sense. Uh, my question is for Dr. Brown. I'm curious what your response is regarding controversies. We know that Paul the Apostle traveled as a missionary extensively, as recorded in the book of Acts, and he got in a lot of trouble all over. Yet there's no mention anywhere of him proclaiming Jesus to be God or issues that any Jew over the last 20 centuries would have with what we would call a Trinity theory. So I just was curious if you could respond to that point and tell us how Paul managed to get away preaching Jesus is God to Jews and not have them ever get upset about that at all. Well, first thing, it doesn't give us every reason that they were upset, but we know that they were upset from city after city after city. And they claimed that he was preaching something new, some kind of new doctrine. And in Acts, the 16th chapter, when Paul and Silas are saying there's a, a new religion they're preaching, Roman law was you can't bring in another god. And we also know that the accusations from the outside that the Christians worship Jesus as God. I quoted from, from, from Pliny. For example, as, so we do have evidence that there was controversy over that. And we know, uh, beginning in Acts 9, I believe, that he preaches Messiah as Son of God. But even more importantly, his conversion, who are you, Lord? First century Jew, God appears to him. He falls down. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. So right there, we have it. And once he preached that, that was outrageous. But also remember that one of the biggest controversies was that he was going to the Gentiles. To us, it seems like no controversy at all, but it was a controversy then. So number one, there is evidence that refutes your, your point. Number two, there is the explicit reference to who are you, Lord, not just some other being there. And now he's going to live the rest of his life for this Lord. And then we have his explicit statements in the New Testament. So Acts tells us a certain amount, but generally speaking, we're going to draw our doctrine from the explicit statements elsewhere in the New Testament. Acts 20, 28 there's debate over this because the, the Greek is not 100% clear, but it does speak of God's sheep bought with the blood of his own. Is it his own blood or his own and son is left out? So that's a debatable point, but certainly we can make our case uh, just the same through the book of Acts and from early external evidence that Christians worshipped Jesus as a god. It sounds like listening to that answer, his answer is no, there isn't any evidence uh, of controversy about Jesus being God or about God being triune. 
I mean, what the controversy was about is about him being the Messiah, about the inclusion of the new covenant with the Gentiles. With resurrection, they mock that. They mock him for that, right? I mean, what you see early Christians preaching is exemplified in what you see in Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God, right? Two different ones there, with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him. It's the one God acting through this agent. As you yourselves know, this man, wait, how can he just say man and leave it there? But he does. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. The only son in the New Testament is the killed one by the hands outside of the law. God raised him up having freedom from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the big message. Nothing about Jesus being God there. Hello, Dr. Tuggy. Uh, my question is about the new creation that you seem to have touched upon. In John, it says that in him, clearly the logos is indicated, was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light was manifest. And I take the manifestation of that light that was in the logos to be the, the man, Messiah, Jesus, the Lord Christ. I'm wondering... For a biblical Unitarian, does this connect with the creation account where it seems as though Adam came out from the Holy Spirit? Oh, I don't understand what you mean by that last part about Adam coming from the Holy Spirit. Well, in the, in the Genesis creation, which it seems like John's talking about a creation like Genesis. Yeah. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5, mm -hmm. we find out that there's a first and a last Adam. The first Adam is clearly a man. So I'm saying, is it possible that this Lagos is sending out, coming out from the Lagos, like the breath of life went into the man that, that God created? Yes, I mean, some contemporary theologians call what you just said a spirit Christology, understanding Jesus as a man whom God gives with the spirit without measure, he says in one place. And this is why he has the special calling, the special powers, the special privileges that he does, is because he has that calling, he has that empowerment by God's Spirit. John 1, we think, is a comment on Genesis. It's sort of a giving an eternal origin to Jesus in a sense. I think he's trying to steal, this is just my personal speculation, I think he's trying to steal early kind of Gnostics thunder, who had Jesus being some kind of heavily eon. Hey, I'll do you one better. God's eternal word which is in this time associated with his wisdom, by which he made all things. That is what we see in the man Jesus. The point that Dr. Brown can't seem to get his mind around because he's only ever read John 1 in a Logos theory kind of way is that 114, when it says the word became flesh and dwelled among us, is not a spirit gaining a body or something like that. It's like earlier statements where God's word leaps down from heaven, God's wisdom becomes a book in the Torah and things like that. For them, it's not a difficult thought. Again, they know they're dealing with a man, a man who was recently born, not an eternal being. It's kind of bizarre that when Dr. Tuggy disagrees with me, he assumes I'm not familiar with the position I reject. Of course, I'm quite familiar with these other readings. And John 1 is best read in the Memra context, the word of the Lord in Judaism. Of course, he is, and amazingly, Dr. Tuggy said, in a sense, John, speaking of the eternal preexistence of Jesus, hello, that was my whole point tonight, the eternal preexistence of the Son. Let's just read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Slam dunk, simple, just accept what it says. You don't need any other philosophy. Go with the word. My question is for Dr. Brown. One of the qualities of the only true God in 1 John 3.20 is that God knows all things. So the only true God is omniscient. Now, Dr. Tuggy brought up the verse, Mark 13.32, where Lord Jesus Christ himself said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, mm -hmm. but only the Father. So Jesus Christ does not know when the day of judgment is, therefore he's not omniscient, therefore he's not God. How do you answer that? 
Well, the way it's always answered. He said in his incarnation, what's the mystery? He had to sleep as a human being. He got tired and slept. He had to eat as a human being. He didn't know everything as a human being. The Spirit had to reveal things. He said he did the works he did by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's very simple, self-evident. And why should it surprise us that the Son, as a human being, doesn't know certain things? Why in the world should that surprise us? The Son, as a human being, had to learn to speak. The Son, as a human being, had to learn to walk. The Son, as a human being, could bleed. So, of course, this is self-evident, the same answer that's, that's always given to the question. And Philippians 2 tells us what happened. So again, it's quite clear. He existed in the form of God, but he didn't hold on to that as something to use for his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself. If he was just a created being, it's not humility to become a created being. Rather, he came down. He said, repeat, I came down. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I came from the Father. I'm from above. You're from below. He states his preexistence every which way possible, as do the, as do the other New Testament authors. And if he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, surely he has no limitation in his eternal state as son. But as a human being, of course, he's totally limited. That's the incarnation. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. And that's the example of humility for us, that even though as eternal deity he could hold on to that, he didn't. He stripped himself of those privileges and became a human being and died for us. That is the incredible message of the gospel. And to make it just a glorified man who died for us is to completely neuter the love of God and the power of the gospel. Yeah, so this is another case where Dr. Brown is presenting something as obvious as what, as in a way, the Bible's always been read this way, and it's, it's just not obvious at all. So he's talking about in Philippians 2 when it says the son emptied himself. The traditional answer, which he, it sounded like he was going to give for a second, was that the son knows everything as God and is limited in knowledge as man which of course is nonsense because if you know everything in nature, you know it. And if you have limited knowledge in nature, you have limited knowledge. So that's just a way of saying it looks like that he doesn't doesn't know everything. Traditionally, they accepted the creed of Chalcedon. They would say the characteristics of each nature was preserved. Traditionally, they would just say, no, he was omniscient. The problem is that it looks like he's then deceiving the people listening to him. This idea that he somehow lessened his knowledge in the act of incarnation is a new theory propounded in the 1800s. It's called kenosis theory. You can look it up. No one ever said that before the 1800s. When the Trinity's podcast returns, an audience member asks me how God and Jesus can receive the same worship. My um, question is for Dr. Tuggy. Um, this is coming out of Matthew chapter 21, verse 15 and 16. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. Now that comes out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, where David was praying to Yahweh, to the Lord. The Bible says that he ordained praise for himself. They was indignant because the people was giving Jesus the same praise that was being ordained, that was ordained for Yahweh only. That's why he said, praise for yourself. So how can Jesus and Yahweh or God have the same exact praise? and it not be idolatry if Jesus wasn't God. Okay, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, about them getting the same worship, look at the reasons cited for worshiping God in Revelation 4 and contrast them with the reasons cited worshiping the exalted man Jesus in Revelation 5. Now about this Yahweh text being applied to Jesus in the passage cited in Matthew uh, 21, this is a common thing in the New Testament. Okay, but there's a problem here. I call it the fulfillment fallacy, and it's a beginner's mistake in reading the New Testament. You say the original passage was about this person, 
And then the New Testament says it's applied to Jesus, so Jesus must be the same one as it was originally about. This is an obvious mistake. Here's one way you can see it. Uh, Psalm 110.1 is quoted many times in the New Testament. The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, etc. Originally, scholars believe this was a coronation psalm. Some king, maybe David, it's saying, God says to David, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They apply this to Jesus. Okay, we cannot conclude that Jesus is David or whoever that original king was. It's a new application in a new context. That's how they're using the Old Testament. I'm sorry if I went past my two minutes. No, I'm sorry. We I was pointing the, to say uh, the clock wasn't there, so I'll set my own watch for a minute. Yeah, great point, sir. Perfect point. Uh, this fulfillment fallacy is something that Dr. Tuggy came up with. So let's just forget that theory and go with Scripture. The only way you can take a text that explicitly talks about praise, honor, adoration that belongs to Yahweh and apply it to anyone else is if that anyone else is Yahweh. Otherwise, it is a gross misapplication. It is taking glory from the only true God. Not only so, let's remember that Kurios, Lord, was used in the Septuagint to, to translate Yahweh almost 7,000 times. So that's what you're seeing, Lord, 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 in your Bible. And Jesus is Lord, 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 Lord. Unambiguous. The identification was absolutely there. That's why it was scandalous to some, but glorious to others. Rather than call it nonsense, let's bow down and worship. Hi, thank you for allowing us this forum. I feel like a family reunion, all the faces I see here, so thank you. Um, I got a follow-up uh, for Dr. Brown, a follow-up question to the debate question, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? On page 11 of the book you cited, volume 2, Answering Jewish Objections, mm -hmm. you write on page 11 to the answer to this question in the affirmative. You say, yes, using John 17, 3, uh, Jesus himself taught that his father was the one and only God. And then you say that Paul taught it clearly, mm -hmm. the one true God, our father. And then you use 1 Corinthians 8. Mm -hmm. How does that fit? And you restated that today. You said the father is the only true God. So how does that fit with your position in the negative. Yeah, you, you never want to quote an author to refute an author, because I, I, why don't you quote the rest of what I wrote? The whole purpose of writing that was to exalt the Son as the eternal God. Can you show me where I said that the Son is not the only true God? Can you show me where I said that, hinted at it, anything within a trillion miles of that? No, 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 of course not. Is it true that the Father is not Lord? Jude 4 that our only master and Lord is Jesus. So are you going to conclude from that that the Father is not our master, God is not our Lord? 1 Corinthians 8, we have one God, one Lord. Does that mean that the Father is not Lord? No. So you're, just as Dr. Tuggy is constantly putting words, concepts into the minds of New Testament writers to come up with these bizarre things, the creation in the beginning is a future creation, and first in the last Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, actually doesn't mean that. You now have to put words in my mouth in my own book. So the simple answer, read the rest of what I wrote, sir. It's all there. I never said that the Son is not true God. Never said it, never hinted at it. In fact, the whole reason I wrote that was to reach out to my Jewish people to help them understand the nature of God's complex unity and how Father, Son, and Spirit are God. So you should know that reading it. But Thank you for the question anyway. So I never said that the Father is God and the Son is not, or the Father is true God and the Son is not. Never said it, never hinted at it. In fact, everything I wrote was the opposite of that. Thank you for asking. If there's one true God and it's the Father, that's just to say that no one else is. If Donald Trump is the one true president of the United States, then anybody that's not Donald Trump is not currently president of the United States. The passage is not ambiguous. As for Paul... Well, first of all, Jude 4, look up what your translator's footnote. There's a problem with the translation there, and he keeps citing that and assuming his preferred translation. As for Paul, he does not confuse Jesus with Jesus' God. He calls in Ephesians 1, 
the Father, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? This Lord has a God over him. So he's not being called Lord in the sense that Dr. Brown would prefer. Again, they distinguish the Lord God from the Lord Jesus. Look at the start of all of Paul's letters. He sends greetings from the two of them. If they were the same self, that would be senseless. I have a question for Dr. Tuggy. In Psalms 49, 7 through 10, it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So when this scripture is saying that no human being can ransom a human being, you know, every human is broken and sinful, how can it be that Jesus is just a man that he could ransom us from our sins. It's not a New Testament teaching that Jesus has to be God to ransom uh, or to be a proper person to provide atonement for our sins. It is an explicit New Testament teaching that Jesus is a man and that he died. And as I mentioned earlier tonight in Hebrews 2, it seems to say that a qualification for providing atonement was that he should be like his brothers in all things and that he should be flesh and blood. So I don't take the passage that you're, you're uh, citing in Psalm 49 to be stating some kind of general theory of atonement that's supposed to control how we read the New Testament. New Testament doesn't have a lot of theory of atonement in it. It says that Jesus is the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It compares him to the Old Testament sacrifices. It says he's God's precious, beloved son. It says we know how much God loves us because while we were still sinners, Christ, not God, Christ, God's Christ died for us, the man Jesus. So they seem to think that he's a plenty precious and valuable sacrifice. This theory that the person that provides atonement has to be of infinite value because sins against God have infinite disvalue, and somehow the values wouldn't balance outright or something like this. This comes from St. Anselm, the medieval philosopher, and it's just unheard of in Christian tradition before then. Before then, they would speculate in other ways. For instance, some of the church fathers say that Jesus has to, quote, be God. They mean, in some sense, uh, have divine nature, whether or not it's in the full sense. They say Jesus has to be God in that having the divine nature so that he can make us God, so he can divinize us. The idea is you have to have a quality before you can give that quality to another, which is not true. That's a ridiculous speculation, but... Yeah, anyway, you don't want to put too much value in speculations like Anselm's. Yeah, so no speculation. God gave his one and only son, and if he did not give of himself, of course he couldn't save the world. Scripture is explicit. There's one Savior. Yahweh said he's the only Savior. When Paul refers to Jesus unambiguously in the Greek, unless you're going to try to read something out of it because you're troubled by it, he speaks of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter says we're saved by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, how else is God going to save the world and bring righteous forgiveness for the sins of the world? The reason the Messiah dying for us was so precious is because the Messiah is the divine Son. As for Jude 4, looking at translation notes, the terms Master and Lord both refer to the same person. The construction in Greek is known as the Granville Sharp rule, as any Greek scholar here would tell us and affirm. Pretty simple. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for answering our questions here. And Dr. Tuggy, I guess you could both answer this question. It's quite simple, probably yes or no. Was Jesus the eternal father in Isaiah 9-6? Yeah, that's a mistranslation. Uh, Aviad either means father forever or father of eternity, as in possessor of eternity. The king was the father of the nation. So a better translation either would be father forever or father of eternity or possessor of, a, of eternity. The son is not confused with the father. The son is referred to as Yahweh. The father is referred to as Yahweh. God in triunity can be referred to as Yahweh. But the son is not the father, and the father is not the son. So Isaiah 9, 6, Shalom, Aviad there is best translated as father forever or father of eternity as in possessor of eternity. But he's not called everlasting father there. I'll take a pass. I don't have anything illuminating to say about that verse. Dr. Tuggy, it's been suggested that 
unless one believes that Jesus is fully God, then one cannot believe that Jesus is fully Savior. And yet we represent a people who believe that Jesus is fully Savior. That if you don't believe that he's fully God, you can't believe that he died for one's sins, and yet we believe he died for one's sins. That if you don't believe Jesus is God, then you're taking glory away from God by worshiping Jesus. Yet as a people, we believe in worshiping Jesus, and as Unitarians, that ought to be a scarier thought to us than, uh, than to others. And then, it's, it's and it, I, I'm getting to my question, and then to wrap around that, it's suggested that in the Old Testament, the people, at least who knew God best, actually thought of him as a plurality of beings, that two beings were the one God. Uh, and also, of course, they believed in the Holy Spirit. I want you to speak to the idea of how essential is it that the way we think about God affects whether we can be in relationship with God, know God, be aware of God. I understand you give respect to the faith and genuine faith of people who disagree with us. So I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about why it is that we can look at it in that way. We can disagree and still respect. The question is, why does it matter whether we understand God properly? Something like that. It matters quite a lot in this case. I'm a Unitarian, but I'm not an anti-Trinitarian. If you think the New Testament teaches some Trinity theory, go for it. I think that's what you should believe. Uh, However, when you look into serious scholarship, these traditional proof texts just keep falling and falling. There's a big trend in this in the last couple hundred years. Why do I think it's important to distinguish God from the Son of God? Well, partly it's because Jesus is supposed to be a model for us to imitate. And I can't put on my omniscience, omnipotence, and my immunity to temptation and so on and imitate that. But I can do what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, which as I read it, and some other scholars read it this way as well, Philippians 2, I think, is about Jesus's earthly obedience. And in fact, that is sufficient to make Paul's point. Have this mind in you that's like the mind uh, that Jesus had. Basically, he says he served God even through a horrible and painful death. Jesus is a model of faith for us, and uh, it was gracious of him to volunteer to be that sacrifice. Dr. Brown substitutes his own formulation that God gives of his own self when Jesus dies. Well, I think God suffered to see his only son be crucified. I think that was a horrible thing, just as if I saw my only son crucified. But this idea that it was God himself that died, no, God can't die. God is immortal. And Jesus is the first of many brothers, it says, and the author and finisher of our faith. So it's important to distinguish them. When I was a Trinitarian, which I was for the first 30 years of my life, I did distinguish God and Jesus when I read the Bible. And then when I started talking about theology, I just immediately confused them back together again. Uh, Of course, it's not my own theology to embrace the Incarnation. And this is a very serious error tonight. It's not a a minor error. There was a controversy with Arian who believed that Jesus, or the Son, I should say, was the first created being. But to deny that and to just make him a glorified man, that's very serious very demeaning to the Son, very dishonoring to the Son. Of course it matters what we believe about it. What if we believed he was a sinning human being? Could he die for our sins? Obviously not. And how can we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is just some kind of power and not personal? And how can you give the same worship to a created being, the same glory that you give to a created being, without dishonoring the Creator? That's hardly monotheistic, so I'm not the judge of anyone's salvation here, but I would say you're espousing a terribly dangerous position that deeply dishonors the Son and deeply dishonors the Father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the Q&A time goes into overtime. Dr. Brown is my question. When Jesus asks his disciples who he, who he is, 
People say he's um, John the Baptist, Elijah. Then he asks the disciple, who do you say I am? He said, he said, you're the Messiah, Lord. Is there a specific scripture where Jesus explicitly says he's God? So first thing, the disciples say you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the first thing. So what does that actually mean? Does it mean he's just a man? Does it mean more than man? How do we understand this? That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, Jesus does say that he and the Father are one, that he's in the Father and the Father's in him, and if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And he says that he enjoyed glory with the Father before the world was created. And he also takes on the divine identity by saying, I am, which was what Yahweh said, and you, you have it, for example, in Psalm 50 and Hosea 1 as well, that Ehiyah, I am, egoimi in Greek. So in John 8, 58, not only does he speak of his preexistence, but directly identifies himself with Yahweh, which of course gets people very upset that are there. So here's the issue though. If he just said, I am God, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's Father, Son, and Spirit? Does it, does it mean that God's no longer in heaven? What does it mean? So he explained things in a way that God, the one true God, remains seated and throned in heaven, and then he identifies himself in very clear ways with that one true God, and that's why the rest of the New Testament authors, contrary to what we heard, that there are all these controversial texts, Hebrews 1 is not controversial. The way Dr. Tuggy interpreted it tonight is not controversial. It's impossible. But I could go through the top commentaries. Tell you what, take the, the top 30 English translations and look up every verse we cited, and you'll see it ain't so controversial. It's what scholars, Greek scholars, interpreters understand. In fact, there's been a wave of recent books written exalting Jesus, the Son, as eternal deity. In fact, there's some of the best scholarship on that in recent years. But he does say things enough so that when Thomas sees him resurrected, he gets it, and he says, my Lord and my God. Clear enough. What you're talking about is kind of, I think, the highlight of the first three Gospels when they explicitly say who he is, and he says he's the Messiah. In the New Testament, the Son of God, that phrase, is a title of the Messiah, you can tell by the way they use it, they kind of interchange them. The Son of God, comma, that is the Messiah, the Christ. This is one of the facts, again, that's shocking if they're Trinitarian, but makes sense on my view. This is their main point. They do not make a main point of saying that he is God or has a divine nature. Now, he's referred several times, Dr. Brown, to the I am statements. The statement I am in Greek, ego eimi, is an idiom that's very often translated I am he or I am the one. The one he is in John is God's Christ, God's Messiah. John 8.58, he thinks this uh, refers to eternal existence. Before Abraham was, I am he is the way it should be translated. As Dr. Brown knows, Jews will talk about predestined things as having always been, and that's an example of that. In the scripture it says, uh, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, which is First John 5, 7. Yes, this used to be a favorite proof text for Trinitarians. And all current translations of the Bible say that that verse was not in the original Greek text. Erasmus discovered this, the famous uh, 16th century New Testament scholar. He discovered that none of the Greek manuscripts had that verse the way you quoted it. He took it out. There was an outcry because how else are we going to prove the Trinity if we don't have this verse that says these three are one. And so under political pressure, he put it back in. Biblical Unitarians and other kinds of Unitarians kind of led the charge in the 17 and 1800s saying, hey, that's not in the text. So yeah, look at the NIV or the New American Standard, New Revised Standard. You're probably looking at the King James, I'm guessing. Yep. Yeah, I think we probably agree on this one. Okay, everybody get out your cameras. Watch this. On this point... We agree that 1 John 5, 7, as in the King James, is, is not in the original text. However, I totally disagree that there was a panic because that was the only way to prove the Trinity. It's just people thought it was in the Bible, and it was a great proof text, and it was a beautiful text, but, but it wasn't. And all the Trinitarian arguments that existed in early church history, that they didn't need that text. What I find fascinating, though, to go back to John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You may say, I am he. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? 
because he said, hey, I'm the predestined Messiah before Abraham lived? No, because he claimed to be the pre-existed eternal God. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. Sorry, but I got to stay with the word here. Hi, my question's for Dr. Brown, and it is referring back to whenever you were talking about the angels appearing to Jacob, I be- Abraham, I believe. If the angel of God, which appears in the Old Testament as an agent of God, is Jesus, does that make God an angel? And if this is so, then why would he appear as an angel in the Old Testament and not in his man form, as you later say he does in the New Testament? Yeah, thank you for the question. So Hebrew malach, like Greek angelos, can mean an angel or it can mean a messenger. It doesn't speak necessarily of a particular quality of being. So there are examples where Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord, appears, and that person thinks they're going to die because they've, enc- they've seen God himself. Jacob wrestles with a man. Hosea 12 says it's a Malach, it's an angel. And then he names the place Peniel. He says, because I've seen God face to face and live. Genesis 18, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, and he looks up, and there are three men. And then it says that Yahweh and the two angels, as you read the text, Yahweh has an extensive dialogue with Abraham at the end of the chapter. The two angels go on to Sodom in the 19th chapter. So in Genesis 48, Jacob says, and and the Hebrew grammar is very, very clear. Anyone that could read Hebrew would have to agree grammatically. He speaks of God. God and the angel he redeemed me all as one and then prays in the Hebrew that that one will bless. So Jacob explicitly identifies this angel with whom he wrestled who appeared to him, the one who redeemed them as Yahweh, as God. And then, for example, in Exodus 23, God says that his name is on his malach, his messenger, and that that's why he will not forgive their sins. So in some cases, it could simply be there's an angel bearing divine glory, and because of that, people were terrified. I'm sure Dr. Tuggy would believe that was the case, or the angel was representing God. In other cases, it's clear that the people encountered God in the malach, in the messenger. But that's the whole point. He appeared in a few instances in human form or angelic form in the Old Testament, and then tabernacled among us, took on human form, and lived among us in the New Testament. Yeah, Dr. Brown says a lot about this angel of the Lord and uh, tries to get it to show that God is somehow complex. In his writings, he makes the point often that uh, how can God both be enthroned in heaven and on earth? He seems to, he doesn't quite put it this way, but he seems to suggest unless there are multiple persons or different parts of God or something like that. My reply to that, I skipped some of that in the rebuttal because he mentioned 50 other texts. But my reply to that is it's very easy for an all-knowing, all-powerful God to appear in 47 different ways at once, to in some sense be in heaven and be on earth and appear in different ways. About this idea that you should absolutize the statement that you can't see God and live, uh, a leading Old Testament scholar, Benjamin Summer, says, what is surprising is how many people discover that there were exceptions to this rule. So it looks like in the Old Testament, Isaiah saw God, Amos saw God, Abraham, Moses saw God in some sense. Did they see him not in his full glory? Did they see a manifestation? Did they see an angel? These are disputed questions, but you don't build a theology on disputed questions. Hi, thank you very much for uh, taking a little extra time with us and for answering a few more questions. I really appreciate it. This is something that's been touched on uh, briefly throughout the evening, but it's valuable enough that I think it deserves to be recapitulated perhaps in a little bit different way. Dr. Brown, this question is actually for you. There have actually been a few things that have given me some pause in your view about the death of Jesus. I've heard you say that Jesus, you know, had to be God to pay for our sins. And of course, um, uh, Dr. Tuggy has challenged that with, well, how could God die? But Dr. Brown, you say that the death on the cross was really a separation. It was a separation of the body uh, and the spirit. But the problem I see with that is that in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says that God can't die. It says that he is immortal. Whatever death is, God can't do it. So that's problem number one. And then number two, uh, adding another layer of complexity onto that, you said many times this evening that the son didn't die. Now, as a Christian, that gives me a little bit of pause when somebody suggests that the son didn't die. The New Testament says in a few places explicitly that it was the son that died. The son of God died. Jesus himself, the person, the personality, he says, I died. I was dead. 
God, it says, gave his son. It's the person of his son. That's who he gave. It wasn't a body. It's the death of the person of the son that is valuable enough to be worthy to be the sacrifice of our sins, which I, which I know you agree with. So what do we do with a crucifixion scheme in which, number one, God can't die, and then you say, yes, that God the son didn't die. So who actually died for our sins? How can you help us make sense of your crucifixion? Sure. Uh, glad, glad to do that. Allow me just to clarify that when Dr. Tuggy just quoted from Benjamin Summers, the wrong guy to quote, because the whole reason Benjamin Summers is saying that is because he holds a position similar to mine, and he said some Jews regard Christianity's claim to be a monotheistic religion with grave suspicion, both because of the doctrine of the Trinity and because of Christianity's core belief that God took bodily form. No Jew sensitive to Judaism's own classical sources, however, can fault the theological model Christianity employs when it avows belief in a God who has an earthly body as well as a Holy Spirit and heavenly manifestation. For that model we have seen is a perfectly Jewish one. So as to your question, a spirit doesn't die, a body dies, correct? In other words, Paul writes in Philippians 1 to be absent, uh, that he longs to be with Jesus, which is far better. That 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Revelation 6, the souls of those beheaded are under the throne of God crying out. So we understand that the human spirit doesn't die. The human spirit either goes to be with God or to a place of judgment but the physical body dies, and we know that, and yet we say the person died, right? Someone died. Here's the obituary. When they died, what died? Their physical body. So just like God doesn't die, a human spirit doesn't die, Jesus says in Matthew 28, don't fear people. You can only kill the body. But God, who after he's killed the body, can also destroy the soul or the spirit in hell. So when Jesus dies for us, what dies? The physical body. What's crucified? A physical body. And the person lives in that body. So when the body dies, when the blood is shed, you say the person died, but that the spirit of that person didn't die. So the nature of God within Jesus never died, but the physical body died. We use that terminology a thousand times a day in terms of, you know, look at every obituary. That's when the physical body died. The spirit is either with God or in a place of judgment. Dr. Summer, who is a Jewish scholar, he seems to think that the Trinity is just God manifesting in three different ways. And if you think that, I see why you would love that quote. As far as I can tell, your view is basically modalism, except that your modes or personalities are co-eternal. They're not one after the other. I think that's a disastrous view of the New Testament for the reasons I already said. Um, now about who died, I talk about this at great length in detail using two natures theory in a presentation called Tis Mystery All the Immortal Died. The problem is that to die is to lose all or most of your normal life functions. You think that the real son, which took on a body, is this divine person, and you think that divine life just went rolling along as normal. And so that's why you're, you're saying that he didn't die. You say the body died. Well, to die, again, is to lose all most of your life functions. To appeal to dualism doesn't help here because we still think that the person in the, in the casket is dead. Whether or not there is a soul that exists, that's another point. Thanks a lot for taking the extra questions. Be very careful. Jesus Christ said, I died. Let's not call him a liar. Jesus, the Mashiach, Amar Ani Mati. Jesus, the Messiah, said, I died. Let's not forget it. So my question is, it's kind of a quiz. In the book of Acts, let's actually back up to the last chapter of Luke, when the Messiah Jesus appears resurrected from the dead. What did he go back into the Old Testament to show the apostles? And then he does it two times in Luke chapter 24. And then what do the apostles in the book of Acts continually go back into the Old Testament to show the apostles? Is it the deity of Messiah, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, what they show is that the scriptures prophesy that the Messiah has to be killed unjustly and then raised and exalted. I quoted earlier Acts chapter 2. Dr. Brown is insisting that it's essential to the gospel that you realize that Jesus is God and that God is in some way complex. I don't see Peter preaching that. I see him preaching that Jesus was a man, which is my view, and that God raised him, and the God he's talking about is the Father. And my view and Peter's view is that that is the one true God. I don't believe in two gods. 
I think the word God can sometimes be applied to beings other than God, which is an uncontroversial statement for a scriptural scholar. There's the Lord God and there's the Lord Jesus, and the New Testament does not confuse them. In fact, it constantly distinguishes them. For us Christians, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord. I'll just take my one minute to be fair. Okay, thanks. Please don't accuse me of misrepresenting or misquoting Jesus. Jesus on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Did he commend his body or his spirit? And he says, I have the authority to take my life back up. That's not just a human being. And by the way, I'm not saying Professor Summer is a Trinitarian as I am. I'm simply saying that his views are used in support of our position quite frequently. And I'm not modalist, but I do believe you believe in two gods, so at least we're clear on that. Bottom line, when a person dies, we are speaking about their physical body. He shed his blood. And when Jesus opens up the scriptures to his servants, what do they then write afterwards? They speak of the divine son, the one who was in the beginning, the preexistent eternal one, the one who himself is God. Where did they get that from? Obviously from Jesus himself. Thank you. Thank you. Can we show appreciation for our two debaters tonight? Thank you, Dr. Tuggy, and thank you, Dr. Brown. So what did you think about the questions and answers? Was there an answer that you didn't find convincing? Was there an answer that you thought was sort of missing the point? Did either side win? Let us know what you think in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in the Trinities Podcast Facebook group. Also, don't forget to look for the follow-up interviews, the post-debate interviews with Dr. Brown and with me that are at the Restitutio podcast. As I record this, Dr. Brown's episode is already out, and it's interesting. I recommend it. My episode was just recorded the same day I'm recording this, and it should be out shortly. So check that out at restitutio.org, podcast produced and hosted by the inimitable Pastor Sean Finnegan. This week's thinking music has been the track Dirty Rims Backing Track by a user named Coruscate. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.